Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Well, good evening. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, as many of you already know, um, my name is Ann Caves, and I'm professor of religious studies at UCSB and hold a Cordano chair in Catholic studies. So on behalf of the Department of Religious Studies and the CAPS Center for the Study of Ethics, Religion, and Public Life, I would like to welcome you all here to what I realize is the seventh in our annual Tipton Lectures. So we've been doing this for a little while, but this is the first one that we've done downtown, as far as I can remember. And every year we have an endowment that allows us to bring a distinguished uh, visiting professor to campus in the area of Catholic studies. So this year, our J.E. and Lillian Byrne Tipton Distinguished Visiting Professor is Michelle Dillon, who is Professor of Sociology and Department Chair at the University of New Hampshire. She received her bachelor's and her master's degrees in sociology from her native Ireland, and you will catch a little bit of the Irish accent when she speaks. Um, and her PhD in sociology at UC Berkeley. Uh, she fell in love with California, she has confessed, uh, while she was a student here. And she taught for several years at St. Mary's College in Moraga before taking positions at Rutgers and Yale and finally settling down at the University of New Hampshire. She's a prolific writer and she has served as president of the Association for the Sociology of Religion and is president-elect of the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion. But I think that uh, the prospect of a warm winter back in California is probably one of the reasons we were able to attract someone of her eminence. Um, here is our visiting professor this year. Um, although she is a very wide-ranging scholar, uh, she has just published an introduction to sociological theory and a few years back edited a handbook of the sociology of religion. The study of Catholics and of Catholicism is central to her work. Her first book was a study of moral conflict over divorce in Ireland. And her second focused on marginalized Catholics who choose to identify as Catholic even though their understanding of Catholicism does not quite meet with official church teaching. A kind of Catholic I'm sure none of you are familiar with. <laughs> Most crucially for us tonight... Um, she is part of a team that has been surveying Catholics in the United States every few years since 1987. And the results of the fifth of these surveys just came out last fall. And it was titled Catholics in America, Persistence and Change in the Catholic Landscape. And readers of the um, National Catholic Reporter may have seen this insert, which was in you know, the, the middle fold section of NCR, uh, the end of October, and this full big section is a series of articles summarizing the results of their work. So this is something you can go back and follow up on if you want to get dig into this more. 
In her research, Professor Dillon has been interested in how people handle various tensions between autonomy and commitment, authority and doubt over the course of people's lifetimes in the movement of one generation to the next and in relation to changes in the church and the wider society. Tonight, she's going to draw from this research to paint us a portrait of American Catholics in the 21st century. Please join me in welcoming Michelle Dillon. Good evening, and thank you, Anne, very much for that very kind and generous introduction, and thank you all, honorable guests, ladies and gentlemen, for coming out this evening. I, as Anne said, I'm going to talk about American Catholics. I'll say, first of all, as the first slide here is indicating, that, of course, Catholics vary considerably across many different contexts. It's important to say that because sometimes we get focused on our own uh, particular area of the world. But what's particularly interesting about American Catholics is, for various historical and cultural reasons, American Catholicism has maintained an amazing vitality which you don't find in other traditionally Catholic countries such as certainly in Western Europe. Uh, There's good historical reasons as I say partly because Catholicism is another subcultural identity in the US context Uh, and so that even when Catholics may disagree on some items of theology or authority, it still nonetheless has a very meaningful anchoring role in their lives. Unlike, for example, uh, I give the example of Ireland, where today as a result of sex abuse crisis and other issues of authority with the Catholic hierarchy, many Catholics of my generation, who were very good Catholics for many, many years, are now basically withdrawing from religion because they don't see that the Catholic Church is their church. Whereas Americans, by contrast, whatever they think about the Pope or about Rome or any particular aspect of Catholicism, they have a very definite view that Catholicism is their church and for many they're not going to leave it. Uh, So the context of American Catholicism is certainly shaped by its Protestant history, which really is a very strong history going back to the American Revolution, indeed to before the American Revolution, on individualism and what one good American historian, Nathan Hatch, has called the democratization of Christianity. This sense that the church is not something that's out there, that's something that's beyond people's own control, but that it's very much part of their everyday lives. And just as Americans really value their freedom to choose in terms of the economy and in terms of politics, they also have that similar attitude towards religion. And that many would would agree that that, in a sense, that attitude towards religion in general has kept religion strong in America because people have the freedom, as the Tocqueville observed back in the middle of the 19th century, not to be religious, and yet they choose to be, and they therefore then exert a lot of control over that choice. Moving quickly along, we talk about Uh, the history of Catholicism, and I'm a sociologist, not a historian, so we don't want to skim over history, but nonetheless, a major watershed really is the 1960s. The 1960s is a fabled period in American society more generally because of all the cultural changes. And for the Catholic Church, certainly it really is a watershed time because of Second Vatican Council. And uh, post-1960s American Catholicism in terms of the, uh, the initial emphasis on autonomy that comes out of the Protestant denominational culture, got a whole new set of energy, if you like, from many of the affirmations of Vatican II. 
In particular, as many, I think, of you in the audience are familiar with, the understanding that the church, yes, it is a hierarchy, yes, it has the pope and the bishops who are in charge, but nonetheless, as Vatican II affirmed, the church refers to the whole people of God, laity and clerical people alike. Uh, And this notion that we, the people of God, are the church certainly has had a lot of vitality and energy on the American Catholic imagination. Secondly, of course, one of the major emphasis of Vatican II on the idea of religious freedom, that the individual too, even Catholics, not just Protestants, have a conscience, and that they can have an informed conscience, that they can reflect upon moral decisions and the choices that they make in their everyday life, that this conscience is not an anything goes. I know we talk a lot about autonomy, and as Clark, Ruth, and many others have pointed out, there's a huge emphasis since the 60s in general on the autonomy of spirituality and religion beyond churches and outside of churches, but there's also personal autonomy uh, within churches. Uh, And Vatican II, by emphasizing freedom of religion and one's personal conscience, certainly took on the imagination of American Catholics here to add it to their already understanding that religion is about autonomy. And related to that, because all of these strands are interrelated, is the emphasis on interpretive autonomy. For many Catholics, particularly for the pre-Vatican II generation and even for the early Vatican II generation, the notion of interpretive autonomy, that you as a good Catholic could make up your own mind about certain things and have an informed opinion about certain things, was really quite an alien concept, Uh, basically in, not to stereotype earlier times in the church, but really there was that understanding that whatever the Pope and the bishops and the local priests said, that that was the final word on something, and that really you did not have the authority, or indeed it might even be tempting sin, to actually challenge what a priest or a bishop, and certainly what the Pope would say to you. Vatican II, among many other things, changed that emphasis and gave Catholics the, the, the Catholic legitimacy, if you like, the permission from within the Catholic Church. That's what's actually, to me, one of the most exciting things about Vatican II, is that it allowed Catholics to define Catholicism within their own sense of their lives and their understanding of Catholicism. And that, in a sense, was a very enriching gift, really, for many Catholics. So that's sort of some overview and... um, I now want to talk about some of the data that Anne has mentioned. And I should say uh, that my reason when I was, first I should have said this at the beginning, but I was highly honored to receive the invitation to come to UC Santa Barbara and to hold this distinguished chair because the Department of Religious Studies at UCSB is one of the leading, if not really the top leading program in the country and has been for many years. And I feel very honored to be here and uh, very grateful to Anne, to the Religious Studies program and to the Walter Cap Center for hosting me and hosting tonight's event. Yes, the weather too, I have to tell the truth. Uh, uh, the weather too matters. Uh, if UCSB was in Minneapolis, it may have been more difficult. But nonetheless, uh, I think that the, the caliber of the intellectual life here is enough without the good weather. Uh, so I'm honored to be here. Uh, the data, this is new survey data and I'm a co-author with, some of you may well know, uh, William D'Antonio, Bill D'Antonio, who himself is a pre-Vatican II Catholic who has been studying Catholicism really all his life and has lived through much of the, many of the changes across the 20th and into the 21st century. And he has been a, a pioneering researcher, sociologist in our field in sociology, and with 
other colleagues, he had pioneered a series of studies just using surveys uh, to get an assessment of what Catholics think and what they feel. Uh, and this really has become you know, a major source of data. And I was lucky enough to be invited by him a few years ago to join the, the current round of those interviews. Uh, of course, survey research... In sociology, we rely a lot on survey research, and good surveys are really good data. So we have to believe, I know sometimes in this election season, it's popular if you're a politician to say that you don't mind what the surveys say or what the exit polls say. Uh, And sometimes it's good maybe for your own mental health not to pay attention to those surveys. But in general, survey research works. If surveys are done properly, with meaning that if there's a representative sample, Uh, meaning that if I want to pick every fifth person in this room because I want to get their opinion about the church or about American culture, I don't just pick on the people that are smiling at me or look friendly. I have to pick every fifth person and do that systematically. Uh, So it's this representativeness. So it's not actually the numbers you interview, although numbers matter, but it's how representative the people that you interviewed are of the larger public in which you are interested. Uh, So survey research gives very good data, but it's a broad painting of the state of opinion and of belief. Uh, Ideally, we like to complement our survey research with more focused, community-based studies. And as any of you know who are anyway involved in church, whether religion, uh, whether in Catholicism or some other denomination, you can go within a mile of two of the same denominational churches and find a very different atmosphere. So same social class, same general political orientation, uh, but oftentimes the atmosphere in one Catholic church is very different from its sister church down the road. Uh, And that's true particularly uh, across all regions of the country and even region itself alters the tenor. So there's an awful lot of studies to be done looking in an in-depth way at the actual cultures of Catholicism within any particular geographical area. And similarly, within congregations, to sit down and to talk to individuals, not just getting them to fill out questionnaires, which is what surveys do, but to sit with them and try to understand where they come from, where's their understanding, where does the meaning of religion and of Catholicism come from in their life. And so these are all important methods, uh, and they tend to get more of the depth of the experience and the meaning of Catholicism. Nonetheless, surveys do give us a broad picture, but I just want to, this sort of my disclaimer, I'm really painting broad strokes tonight about, based on our results from our uh, recent survey, which was administered last April, as to sort of the current state of Catholic thinking in America. I should also point out that this survey normally, in the past, when these surveys were done by the Gallup organization using a telephone poll, Uh, of interviews, which is fairly standard. This one is actually an internet-based poll. But before you all leave the room, it's not one of these survey monkeys where you suddenly get a pop-up saying, do you think the church is good or bad? Uh, It's actually an organization called Knowledge Networks, which has been ranked as the best internet-based polling organization. So it has all the good credentials. It's still a different method, obviously, sitting down. What they have is a, it's a representative sample. It's a panel of people that they have all over the country, so it's a nationally based sample. And then they focus in on certain of the people within these panels when they want to focus on particular sets of questions. So they do a lot of polling for different, just like Gallup does polling for other groups. Uh, so does this group. But it is internet-based. But So again, so that changes somewhat, because obviously if you 
you're answering questions on the internet and there's more privacy perhaps, you don't have the face-to-face or at least the voice-to-voice of a telephone interview, uh, sometimes it reduces some of the research shows. It makes people freer to express their opinions so that there's less social desirability in some of your answers rather than when a phone person calls on the phone, a pollster calls on the phone and asks you, did you go to church last Sunday or whatever, you know, as we know, there's a tendency to say, oh, yes, I did. Uh, so that's just a little methodological thing that some of you who are familiar with some of the earlier polls might want to question that. But um, we did find overall that the patterns, the, the findings that emerged from our latest survey were, in a sense, not too surprising, right? You know, this is the issue with social science. You don't want to be too surprised. If you find a finding that's totally off base or totally surprising, the first question you ask is, well, what did I do wrong, right? Why am I not finding something that's more consistent with what we know from other studies and other surveys? And so our findings are pretty consistent with what we would expect and what various other studies would find focusing on some of the specific areas that we looked at. So we have a lot of confidence in the data, just that's my pitch for you that these, these are good data. So it is a representative sample and has the typical size of about, you know, it's over a thousand. And one of the advantages of it is that we have an oversample of Hispanics. And this is some aspect of the changing church that I will mention during uh, this evening. When we want to give an overview of contemporary Catholics, and this captures some of what Anne mentioned in her introduction, uh, you find that there's a lot of autonomy, all of this individual autonomy that comes out of a long history, get, that gets fueled by Vatican II, but persists among American Catholics. And in part, this autonomy uh, allows Catholics to remain highly committed to the church. So they mix this personal autonomy, and what that means, as I'm going to show you some graphs on this, is that they, they pick and choose. Now, some people will use the dismissive or more derogatory term that they're cafeteria Catholics. I prefer not to use that term, even though I understand why people use that term, but I prefer to see the picking and choosing as more of a theological differentiation or prioritization. That Catholics are saying there's an awful lot of things in the Catholic tradition. We don't have to prioritize each of these strands with the same value, right? So I prefer, to, rather than having a pick-and-mix cafeteria approach, I prefer to call it theological prioritization. Um, and so, without getting too worried, depending on how, hopefully, that's somewhat visible to you, basically what that graph is showing is that most Catholics tend to give high priority to the core creedal to theological beliefs of the church. So, for example, you know, two-thirds to three-quarters believe in the resurrection of Jesus, right? That's pretty core belief. It's not 100%, of course. You can look at these graphs and see what's where the, there's an absence of 100%, but the largest prioritization is given to Mary, the sacraments, and belief in the resurrection. And notably, although I think it won't be a surprise, certainly to many in this audience, perhaps, uh, is the emphasis in Catholic social teaching on helping the poor. So these really are the four sort of pinnacles the four pillars of Catholic theological prioritization, and I include in the theological prioritization not just the core creedal, such as the resurrection, but also something like helping the poor. And then in the next bar, where you see about a third, you know, over a third to less than half, it's a mix of things. Uh, and this is in response to a question of what do Catholics see as very important, not just important, but very important aspects of Catholicism. So after this more uh, sort of higher prioritization of core creedal beliefs, 
other aspects of the church, such as prayer and devotions, and again, some social teachings, such as the church's opposition to abortion, which, as you know, is an ongoing contested issue. Less so, however, the church's opposition to same-sex marriage. Just over a third of contemporary Catholics say that that's a very important part of Catholic church teaching to them, or a very important part of Catholicism. And then in the these three lower numbers, and of course you can draw the lines wherever you choose, I happen to draw them in this somewhat arbitrary manner, you see that 30% said that the teaching authority claimed by the Vatican is a very important part of Catholicism. 29% say opposition to the death penalty, and that will surprise probably some people, and 21% say the church's teaching on celibacy. So without getting too worked up by some of the specific percentages, when you ask American Catholics what are the very important aspects of Catholicism, they do their own little hierarchy from the issues of the resurrection and the sacraments and Mary and helping the poor down more mediocre emphasis on prayer, devotion, some of the sacraments and church teaching on abortion. But clearly the least emphasis is given to some core aspects of the church structure, the celibacy, requirement and the Vatican teaching authority. These findings have been pretty consistent over the last, really since the 1980s. Andrew Greeley was one of the first to document this, that you know, Catholics make up their own mind and differentiate between the church's teaching authority as opposed to what people might argue is Jesus' teaching, what we get more directly from scripture. So this continues. And following up and to reaffirm this, of course, we all think of what does it mean to be a good Catholic, and this is where perhaps we see American Catholics' autonomy all the more clearly. Uh, As a general point, we can say, as I've said, Catholics are highly autonomous, and I'm doing this from a sociological point of view. I'm not doing it from a pastoral point of view or a theological point of view. That may raise different issues for pastors and theologians, but for us sociologists, we love whatever we find. Uh, The vast majority of Catholics say you cannot be a good Catholic unless you believe in the resurrection and in transubstantiation. I should caution you, though, that a lot of Catholics, that's a whole other talk for another evening, that even though belief in the consecration of the bread and blood into the body, of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ is a core piece of Catholic theology, uh, there's an awful lot of fuzziness about it among Catholics. Uh, Some people believe it but don't know that it's true. Some people don't know whether it's true or not but believe it. There's a whole range of things out there. But anyway, still a lot of them still believe that you have to be, if you want to be a good Catholic, you have actually to believe in uh, the bread and wine being consecrated. Uh, But then you see the big majorities, well over half, 60% and upwards in ascending order, you can be a good Catholic without adhering, without personally adhering to church teaching on abortion. So on that first graph, for many Catholics, regardless of their own personal opinions about abortion, they still value, they see as very important, church teaching on abortion as part of the Catholic identity, if you like. Nonetheless, they still make a differentiation between their respect for Catholic teaching and what they personally think a good Catholic can do. So a good Catholic can uh, not doesn't have to follow or adhere to church teaching on abortion, on helping the poor, and then all of the divorce and remarriage and marriage approval questions. Uh, divorce and remarriage basically referring to the fact that you can remarry without getting an annulment and that you can live uh, in a relationship and call it a marriage or a partnership but not have uh, the sacrament of marriage approving uh, of it. So that's, that's relatively irrelevant for most Catholics. Uh, 
one of the increases in this survey was that one can be a good Catholic without helping one's parish. Um, now, uh, this raises the issue, I think, this jump here. The, these numbers are more or less consistent with what we would expect and with other surveys. I think this helping that one can be a good Catholic without helping the parish either with time or with money is in part a reflection of the recession because we know from other studies of uh, civic engagement and givingness that a lot of people have cut back on giving to organizations even as they're helping neighbors and friends and family members on a day-to-day -day basis. I think it's also related to still... And again, you know, the fallout from the sex abuse crisis where many Catholics think that every money, all the money that they give to their church, to their local church, that a lot of that has been put towards uh, the sex abuse lawsuits and compensation. So that there's a certain still distancing over that. But that's something that we have to watch, obviously, to see. But uh, if we think of the Catholic parish as the center of Catholic community life, it is from, again, if, if not a sociological, at least a pastoral point of view, a bit worrying, but also sociologically, if the parish community is not seen as something uh, deserving of more time and money and attention from ordinary Catholics. That one can be a good Catholic without going to weekly Mass. As you know, Catholic teaching requires you to go to Mass weekly. Uh, but as I have said elsewhere, I think monthly has become the new weekly. Uh, more and more, and this is not just for Catholics, I think it's for Protestants as well. Uh, so that people are still going to Mass, right? And, uh, you know, it depends on, you know, social desirability has an impact, but people are going to church. I mean, all you have to do is drive around and look in churches on, at the weekend. Uh, but it's no longer this weekly obligation in people's mind as much as still keeping in touch and being active within the church. Uh, so, uh, but weekly mass, what used to be a core staple of the requirement of, of the of the. Catholic life. And then, of course, the, the thing that has been persistent since Humanae Vitae in 1968, one can be a good Catholic without practicing birth control. Obviously, that's a debate that may be, depending on who gets elected uh, or candidates for office, that may get renewed debate whether birth control should even be taken out of the hands of churches. But uh, Catholics have long made up their mind on contraception, and they continue to do so. So despite all this autonomy and prioritization, Catholics are highly attached to the church. Catholics love the church. Large majorities, 88%, say that I am unlikely to leave the Catholic church. Now, we know from the Pew Forum and other studies, and if you go to any Unitarian church, there's lots of ex-Catholics. Uh, but most Catholics, 88%, really do believe that they're unlikely to leave. 77% say that the church is among the important parts of my life. Being a Catholic is a very important part of who I am. It's important for me, for younger generations of my family to grow up Catholic. And I cannot, fewer, a little fewer, but it's well over still two-thirds, I cannot imagine being anything but Catholic. So here are these Catholics. You don't have to believe in too many things to be a good Catholic. And you can have a very skeptical view of Vatican authority, but nonetheless, this tradition, this communality of Catholicism still really matters. And this is what keeps Catholics involved and self-identifying as Catholics and committed to their practice of Catholicism. I want to switch a little bit because I did mention that we have an oversample uh, of Hispanics and the reason why we have an oversample of Hispanics is that, as you may already know, nearly half of all immigrants to the U.S. are Catholic, and over half of all Hispanics are Catholic. Not all. Sometimes you have this stereotype image that all Hispanics are Catholic. That's not true. And, um, 
that's itself interesting, uh, but 58% or so identify as Catholic. And again, that's a number that often changes depending on how it's asked and all of that. But it's a, it's a large proportion, obviously. Um, so we interviewed, as I said, extra numbers of Hispanics just to get a sense how maybe, not that we want to predict the future, but how might the impact of Hispanics, Latino Catholics coming into the church impact the tenor or the character of Catholicism? Because clearly it's changing literally the faces of American Catholicism, but might it change also the character of Catholicism? Uh, if you look at this map, you don't need to ruin your eyes, but basically Hispanics, I say, are changing, they're changing the picture of Catholicism, because all of the green, this light green, but particularly the darker green, that's where all the Hispanic growth is. And as you see, it's not, much of it is not in New Hampshire and on the East Coast. Most of it is in the West and the Southwest and parts of Florida and sometimes parts of the Upper West, Midwest. This is a new Catholic church. Right? Uh, we think of American Catholicism as having its crucible in the Northeast, in the, the immigrant communities of Boston and New York and into the Midwest of Chicago. The hegemony of the East Coast Catholicism is on the decline. As you see, if you just look, in 1950, 46% uh, of Catholics lived in the Northeast. Today, only 28% do. So it's this westward shift. Westward, westward expansion or whatever. So uh, that's just something that it's, it's, this has changed. This is real demographic change. Uh, and sometimes churches and other organizations are slow to recognize that, but it's really happening. So one of our questions is, you know, are Hispanic Catholics more devout? But again, I should say that, uh, before you see that, uh, in a sense, I shouldn't even present this data because the Hispanic Catholics in our survey, most of them are very young Catholics. They're the so-called millennial generation. They're the 20-somethings, right? There's very few, because of the waves of immigration, not all, Catholics are not all Hispanic Catholics obviously are immigrants, but a large proportion of them are, and a large proportion of them are young. Uh, and they're also, compared to other Catholics, less educated and much poorer. I mean, the census data from 2010 showed that a quarter, one in four of all Hispanics are living in poverty, right? So many of those Catholics are poor, and ca many of those Hispanics are poor and Catholic. Uh, and they're uneducated compared to other millennials. So if you compare non-Hispanic or basically quite 20-something Catholics with the Hispanic Catholics, there are huge differences between them in terms of education and uh, life chances, uh, likely life chances. So in a sense, it doesn't make too much sense to just suddenly focus on Hispanic Catholics. But nonetheless, when you look at this mostly younger set of people, these younger 20-somethings into their 30s of Hispanic Catholics, you see that they are, yes, somewhat more devout, uh, not on the weekly mass, excuse me, not on weekly mass, but on monthly mass, right? So Hispanics are more likely to go on a monthly basis more often. So overall, they're more likely to go to church, but they're not going to church necessarily every week any more so than the white Catholics. And they're more likely 
than the non-Hispanics to believe that in, during the consecration, the body and blood really becomes, the, bre- the bread and wine really becomes the body and blood. That's a, an answer to a different question than the earlier one, but it's getting at the same idea. That's not just symbolic, but it really is something real. Uh, and they're more likely to say 52% to 34% that the sacraments of the church are essential to their relationship with God. Uh, so even though, and I'm, I'll talk a little later about some of the sort of cultural changes and that many believe that one can have, obviously, a relationship with God outside of any kind of church, nonetheless, for Hispanics, the sacraments are still core. I mean, they're core for most Catholics, but Hispanics, at least these Hispanics in our sample, are more likely than the non-Hispanics to say that. So that sort of fits maybe with our stereotypical image of Hispanic Catholics uh, being a little more devout uh, than non-Hispanics. They're also more deferential to church authority. Uh, so on questions such as, are individuals rather than, should individuals rather than church leaders have the final say about what is right or wrong, uh, for Catholics, as you see, slightly, I mean, that's a significant statistical difference, but it's not a huge, this is not, these are not polar differences. Uh, 60% of, Catholic, of Hispanics compared to 69% of non-Hispanic Catholics said that the individual should make up their own mind on contraception and on, on, on a similar difference on remarriage and annulment and on abortion. But there's huge consensus between them on the sexual issues any kind of non-marital sex, and on homosexual activity. Uh, on same-sex marriage, and this is something that other studies have found, uh, Catholics in general are at the forefront of change. Catholics are slightly more likely, just over 50% of Catholics, are likely to approve of same-sex marriage. They're more liberal on this issue than the Episcopalians and the Unitarians and others. And Latino Catholics are as liberal, if you want to use that word, as their non-Hispanic peers. So as we move into a future where same-sex marriage is going to be become, I believe, more prevalent. I mean, the momentum is with same-sex marriage, even though progressive California is a deviant in this at the moment. Uh, the Hispanics are not going to be holding the Catholic Church back on this. Uh, so that would be my reading uh, of these data. So, they are, so it's interesting that there's more conservative on some of the issues, such as abortion, for example, but not on the general sexuality and same-sex issue. But having said all that, I also see when I look at these data that there's a certain consensus between Hispanic and non-Hispanic Catholics and how they differentiate. So the first point is, yes, Hispanic Catholics are somewhat more devout and more deferential to church authority. But when you then look at what they prioritize, they prioritize the exact same things as the non-Latino Catholics. Right? So it's not as if Hispanic Catholics are saying... Uh, that Vatican authority is one of the most important things about what's important to them about Catholicism. They're like the whites, they're saying it's the resurrection, and in particular they're saying it's helping the poor, right? And Mary and the sacraments, but Vatican authority and celibacy. So if you, draw the, if you were to draw a line across the tops of these bars, you will see that the Hispanic line and the non-Hispanic line go in the same direction, Right? That, to me, is a sign that there's not going to be polarization over doctrine and authority within the church, so that Hispanic Catholics can perhaps continue to be more devout and more deferential, but nonetheless, there's not a culture war here that's driven by an ethnicity that's saying, oh, Hispanic Catholics want to put Vatican authority on a pedestal and put Mary or the sacraments further down. They agree, so that's what I call it a consensus. And similarly, in response to a question on, we asked a series of questions of people, what, are, what is meaningful to you about Catholicism? 
right? Because all the time we keep asking, what's a good Catholic? But what's meaningful to you personally? I'm not giving you all the options, but as you see for both Hispanics and non-Hispanics, you know, the mass is up there, right? Even if you don't go every week, you still find a great deal of meaning in the mass. Concern for the poor. Uh, and then you see, and this is very interesting, this is what I call dissent and loyalty. This is in response to a question, what, I, what is very meaningful, this is very meaningful, not just meaningful, very meaningful to me about Catholicism is that I can disagree with certain aspects of church teaching and still remain loyal to the church. This sort of capsules all that I've been saying sort of all my life in my research, that this is for American Catholics, that you can disagree but be loyal. And here you see that, yes, uh, you know, the, the uh, Hispanics are less likely, but it's only 45%, you know, 5% difference. So that's really not a statistically significant difference. And I should point out here, well, I, I'll show it in the next one. Uh, so anyway, so that's just, you know, that there's same prioritization. Again, if you're to draw two you know, lines across the tops of those bars, they're going in the same direction. They're not prioritizing and they're not finding meaning in different aspects of Catholicism. So as we look to the future, certainly the increasing Latino presence in the church is definitely going to have huge impacts on the demography and on the structure of Catholicism. But I, at this stage, anyway, don't see it uh, as pulling the Catholic tenor of autonomy and commitment in any different direction than it's been in since the 60s, or since Vatican II. Now I want to shift to gender differences, because I sort of have avoided mentioning those. Uh, There are some significant gender differences. Women in general are more involved in and attached to the church's sacramental life, and I will or would argue that they also are more able carriers of the Catholic spirit of inclusivity. Uh, What do I mean by these points? If you exclude, these are just the non-Hispanic Catholics, now these are more comparable categories, these are men and women. You see briefly here, there are not huge differences, but women are more involved in terms of more committed uh, to the resurrection as personally important, to the helping the poor, to Mary, to the sacraments, to prayer. And the last two sets of bars, I should point out that the women are light green. They used to be, I've lost the color somehow in the translation, I think it's usually blue and green. Um, But women are less likely to say that opposition to same-sex marriage is personally very important to them as Catholics, and they're less likely to say that the teaching authority claimed by the Vatican, right? So men are a little more conservative on some of these issues than their gendered peers. Similarly, when you ask what's very meaningful, women... 57% of women compared to 46% of men said that the fact that I can disagree with aspects of church teaching and still remain loyal, that's for women what's key. And that's the most endorsed item of all of the meaningful things. Then, of course, the mass, concern for the poor and the sacraments, all of those women are still more likely. Uh, But it's interesting that the largest percentage is on this dissent and loyalty. So it's this sort of core way that I can have my own opinions. I can totally disagree with a lot of what the Vatican teaches, but I'm still a good Catholic and I'm going to keep the church as a vibrant place. Indeed, I would argue that women are the bridge to Catholicism as a living tradition. And the reasons why I say that, A, is because women are not just more attached in terms of belief about what the church teaches in terms of theology, but they're actually more active in the church. They are more likely than men uh, to attend Mass monthly. 
And one of the questions we asked, what are your reasons for going to church? And one of the answers we saw that many people said, I want to please or satisfy someone someone close to me, like a spouse or a parent. And surprise, surprise, men were more likely to say that than women. So a lot of men are going to church monthly or whenever they go to mass because they want to please their wives or their mothers or whatever, right? So in that sense, when I say women, so many men have their own independent attachment and obviously commitment to the church, uh, but it's long well known that women are the pushers of religious involvement and of religious socialization. And so if we take my argument that women are this bridge to keeping Catholicism alive, if women were to stop going to church, then probably some men might also stop going to church. Nonetheless, so you can disagree with some of my inferences. Um, I'm saying that women are, as a bridge, it's not, I just want to clarify, I'm not saying that women are born more religious. Uh, I know there's some debates about this essential genetic disposition, and I know maybe one day we will find some genes for this, but I think as women's on the ground, every day, every night experiences make them more engaged. Uh, And because they themselves have to deal with so much of the messiness of everyday life, oftentimes, of course, women are still, despite the greater equality in marriage and in relationships, women are still the primary caregivers or family, both of young kids and then, of course, of aging parents, that in a sense they get a more practical understanding of the complexities of everyday life. Uh, And so therefore they're more likely in our findings and in other studies to sort of recognize that individuals should have the moral autonomy to make decisions about whether it's practicing birth control or whether uh, it's in the context of same-sex relations, that they feel that those are messy personal decisions that individuals themselves are best equipped to do. So despite what I'm arguing, women's greater sacramental attachment and participation and this bridge that they have towards keeping Catholicism alive, there is an interesting sociological paradox Despite the greater sacramental sensibility, their attachment to the church, what I'm calling their modeling of Catholic inclusivity, their participation in the church is formally and officially constricted, most notably by the fact that they're excluded from ordination, from ordination to the priesthood. This is not news, uh, but I think it's something that we have to look at from an institutional point of view, and again, I'm suggesting this from the point of view of the sociology of institutional life. Uh, When we look at the church today, one can argue that it's at a critical juncture. It's at a critical juncture for many reasons. I think one of the most obvious and immediate is the continuing fallout from the sex abuse scandals. And as you see there, when you ask people, you know, is the credibility of church leaders uh, damaged by by is the sex, sorry, the sex abuse by priests hurts a great deal, the credibility of church leaders who speak out on social or political issues. Men and women, Hispanics and non-Hispanics, you know, that's a large number of people who said it, it's, it hurts, it's damaged a great deal, right? But maybe we're not too surprised because after all, you know, talking to people on the street, they say, well, how can you listen to the Pope or the, the local priest talk about anything that got to do with politics and morality, given all the, the damage about the sex abuse crisis? And there's consensus, again, in the church upon that. But it's not just on their ability to discuss political issues, but it's also their ability, their pastoral ability. Uh, these are large percentages. I, I mean, they're significant percentages. Uh, again, there's basic consensus between men and women and, and Hispanics and non-Hispanics on this, that it has hurt a great deal the ability of priests to meet the pastoral needs of their parishioners. You know, so those, I think, if you're interested in the continued vitality of the church, they're somewhat probably worrying statistics. 
So that's a within-church threat. There's also, of course, the larger cultural threat that I've alluded to already in terms of the increased autonomy in general in the American religious and spiritual landscape. Uh, one of the biggest findings in sociology or even in social science over the last you know, 30 years has been the more than doubling of the number of Americans who say they have no denominational affiliation. This is one of the biggest findings. Uh, Back in 1987, 7% of Americans said they had no religious denomination affiliation, and now 18% say that. So that's, that's a big... We don't normally see those sorts of jumps uh, in sociology, in social science. Uh, and as we know from Pew, the argument or the estimate is that about 9% of American Catholics who were raised Catholic are no longer Catholic. Uh, there's also, of course, um, a big increase in the number of Americans who describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. And again, that's a talk for another evening. But there is a concern that this shift away from institutional religion is not only decreasing the vitality of the churches, Protestant and Catholic as institutions, religious institutions, but also their connections to the civic life of the larger society and to political engagement and community engagement. Uh, just briefly, you know, Catholics describe themselves, you know, most Catholics still think of themselves as um, religious and spiritual, but my point would be how long can the church or sociologists expect that to continue uh, if there's you know, some of these threats to the church as a vital institution. Uh, and again, we see that many Catholics, uh, you know, there are interesting percentages that along with this other autonomy within the church are also saying that they believe in spiritual energy and physical objects like rocks. They're believing in reincarnation and yoga as a spiritual practice. So Catholics uh, are not sticking within the walls of the church. They're also pursuing ideas of spiritual life beyond uh, what would be seen as part of normal Catholic theology. And indeed, there's a very interesting uh, ethnic differentiation here, Hispanics, and again, these are more young Hispanics, but even when you compare the young Hispanics with the young whites, uh, Hispanics are much more likely to be embracing some of these new spiritual modalities, if you like. Another big issue that's a threatening the institutional viability right now of Catholicism is, of course, the shortage of priests. Uh, as most of you know, there has been a huge decline uh, in the number of priests who are serving. Those who are, who are currently serving are aging. There are no successors coming up through the ranks. And so uh, Catholic parishes, you know, the numbers of Catholics have stayed stable, right, partly because of immigration. Uh, but there really is this issue, you know, what... Where are Catholics going to get the sacraments? Where in particular are they going to get the Mass if there aren't priests to celebrate the Mass? And so this is where I link back to the issue of women's ordination and the need to rethink what to do about the priest shortage. You can't read all of those things, uh, but when you look at asking people what are the acceptable options to consider in light of the fact there's a shortage of priests, Vast you know, majorities are very open to all kinds sort of practical considerations and to new practical possibilities. You know, up, you know, 88, 99, 90% say sharing a priest with other parishes, sharing lay staff with other parishes, merging parishes into one. But as you go right down, they definitely don't want the parish to be closed. You know, closing the parish is the second last one, and the, the last, the three last ones are not having priests available to administer to the sick and to administer the last rites. So again, it's this this for, core focus that the sacraments matter. And while we know that Catholics are very territorial about their parishes, when you get beyond the territoriality, there really is this concern, who will give me my sacraments? And, and particularly those sort of crucial rituals of death and, and illness. Um, there's a 
gender consensus about that. There is more or less a Hispanic, non-Hispanic consensus, except to point out that Hispanics uh, are even you know, more concerned about not having the sacramental availability of the priests. So that's going to put more pressure on the current institutional church with the rising numbers of Hispanics in the church uh, to consider what can we do to make the mass and the other sacraments core that are core to Catholicism available. Uh, most people, again, are pretty open to alternative possibilities, but you know they can recognize, and again, this is gender and consensus, there's not differences between men and women. Men and women are equally willing to endorse women in all kinds of roles in the church. Uh, but again, you see that even though at the bottom, like 60%, endorse the idea of women as priests and even more endorse the idea of deacons, it's still not the same level as having a woman reading in church or being director of religious education. So women's ordination is a complex theological issue, but it's also a complex cultural issue because it's sometimes hard for Catholics, even though they want women to be priests and they want the sacraments, not everybody does, right? And so how do you get over some of these sort of, um, sort of resistances among Catholics themselves about what to do about the current problem? Uh, and again, we see that, you know, uh, uh, again, somewhat Hispanics are a little more hesitant less, or less likely than non-Hispanics to endorse these various options. But in general, the pattern of support is fairly similar. So it's not as if they're going to be holding back the church if it were to embrace change on having greater visibility of women in the church in terms of the role of deacon or as women priests, uh, even though they would be a little bit more resistant, but they're not totally way off there. So again, it's a sort of what I call emerging consensus. As I've said, ordination is a complex theology. You know, the church teaching, as many of you know, is that women priests are not intended by Jesus, that the Eucharist women cannot physically mimic the role of Christ, and thirdly, that a male priesthood is part of the constant tradition of the church. These are, these are the three core theological reasons. Many theologians disagree with those reasons. Um, that's thankfully not an issue for sociology to worry about. Uh, but nonetheless, it shows, you know, Maybe these reasons are open to change. The church tends to talk about the constant tradition, but just as we all know quite recently, the Catholic Church is now welcoming married Episcopalian priests and their families into the church. Who would have thought that even maybe 10 years ago? So change happens, as we know, in Catholicism, uh, and the issue of women's ordination doesn't necessarily, either sociologically, culturally, or theologically, even though it is a very complex issue, it does not have to be an issue not open to change. Uh, certainly, it's the the lack of openness to change is something that's reaffirmed by church leaders. Uh, John Paul reaffirmed this many times during his papacy, even as recently as July 2010. Pope Benedict and the Vatican issued a statement on the, in the context of the sex abuse crisis, and this was after not only the crisis in America, but in all the European countries. Not only did it... Uh, outline new rules disciplining priests who committed pedophilia, but in the very same statement reminded Catholics that uh, opposition to women's ordination is also, and the attempted ordination of women is a grave crime too. Many people sort of had to read that statement a few times because they thought there, were, there was a missed internet connection or something. That was all in the one statement. Uh, so these are complex issues. The church needs more priests there's a lot of support for priests, even among, uh, for women priests, even among theologians, but nonetheless, there's obviously resistance at certain levels in the church. And, as I say, culturally, too, because when you look at this, even though I've told you that 60% of Catholics uh, 
endorse the idea in certain questions of women as priests, when you give them the options between allowing priests who have married to allow them to return to active ministry or to have married men allowed to be ordained priests, they're more likely to favour still men, whether married or whatever status, as priests than as women. Right? So when you give them these, so icons die hard. Uh, so we can say, yes, we endorse certain things, but it's sometimes hard to get over that imagery uh, of things. And again, there's like, I'm not going to dwell on the, there's some ethnic variation, uh, but, on, uh, but it's basically in the same pattern that I've talked about. Nonetheless, it seems to me from an institutional point of view of Catholicism and from the Catholic communality point of view, that the challenge of change has to confront very complex issues, because on the one hand, there's the threat of displacing the iconic and theological significance of the male priest, right? And of course, the male unmarried priest or the male celibate priest. But perhaps more importantly is the threat to the declining significance of the church's own identity. What does it mean to be Catholic as a church or as a community if you don't have the mass and if you don't have the sacraments, which will be impossible more or less if you don't have priests who are able to, to, to celebrate the mass. And to quote the catechism and to quote many other papal statements, they say the church, the sacrament of the Eucharist, the Eucharist is the source and the summit of Catholic life. So if it's that core to the structure and culture and theology of Catholicism, what will happen to Catholicism, to individual Catholic identity and to communal Catholic identity without the Eucharist? Right? Can there be a vital Catholic tradition if people can't fully partake in the Eucharist? So that's sort of a question. I don't have to answer that question, but sociologically this is, if you like, the institutional threat uh, that sort of is looming right now because of the shortage of priests, because of the cultural changes moving people out of churches, uh, and then because, of course, of the ongoing credibility issues of the church as a result of the sex abuse crisis. And so it would make sense, perhaps, some would argue, to consider women's ordination, but not as a political issue. I know it has become politicized, but to consider it as an institutional or a doctrinal issue, that it really is at the core of the Catholic tradition and Catholic identity, and to have openness. I know it sort of seems a little utopian, Utopian to call for any kind of open dialogue, given the current state of our politics more generally and within the church, but it really does look for or need some kind of a creative solution. And as I conclude, I want to say that there's the urgency of this challenge, because even though women, as I have argued, are more attached to the church and more involved in terms of leading the church forward in terms of inclusivity, the loyalty of women, you know, they, they're the ones who say that you can disagree but still be loyal. That loyalty, I think from our numbers, can no longer be taken for granted for the following reasons. If you look at this time series data over the years of our surveys from 1987 to 2011, women are precipitously dropping in how they answer the question, I would never leave the Catholic Church. So men and women basically are now at the same point, but women started at 61% and now they're at 56%. Men were at 50% and now they're at 55%. So women are dropping in terms of saying, I would never leave the Catholic Church. They're also precipitously dropping their mass participation, right? Now women and men are equal. This is weekly mass, right? Monthly mass, women still go more often. Again, a big drop. Women, they're moving away. And finally, that the Catholic Church is among the important parts of my life. Men are beating women in terms of answering that question. It's not a statistically significant difference, but in terms of the trend, I think the trend speaks for itself. We don't like to say that, but this is definitely a picture of decline. Uh, And so, in conclusion... 
I would say that American Catholicism in many respects is very vibrant, it's very alive. Catholics are still participating, they still care about the tradition, they're highly committed. Uh, but there's a lot of dark shadows looming in the church. Uh, and I guess some of you will say there's always been dark shadows, and that's true. But I think some of these shadows have come into sharper relief as a result of these institutional you know, threats of crisis because they're challenging and raising the possibility that the core life of the church, the, sacra- the mass and the rest of the sacraments, are no longer going to be available. And the people most, in a sense, excluded are the women who, in a sense, are the bridge, as I say, to maintaining the ongoing continuity of Catholicism, even as that continuity embraces change. Uh, so, And Hispanics are changing the church, but I don't see them as radically transforming its character in terms of the autonomy and commitment. I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.